Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode on my channel, The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopez, and today my guest is Dr. Hal Arks. He is an emeritus professor of psychology at Ohio State University. His research focuses primarily on areas like judgment slash decision making, medical decision making and economic decision making. He has received several honors and awards over the years, including President of the Society for Judgment and Decision Making, elected Fellow of the American Psychological Society in 1997, uh, College of Arts and Sciences Outstanding Teacher Award in 1997, and Provost Teaching Recognition Award in 1999 and 1990. So, Dr. Harks, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's my pleasure. Okay, the pleasure is absolutely mine. Okay, so today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the main cognitive biases and heuristics that affect all of us, correct? I mean, I've already talked, for example, with people that do work in evolutionary psychology and also in cognitive psychology and social psychology and other branches of psychology and basically all more or less refer to the fact that we kind of have these sort of uh, cognitive biases and heuristics that evolved in our minds throughout time because it facilitated the fact that we had to deal with certain problems that were related to our survival and reproduction and things like that. Uh, so the, perhaps the first question that I would like to ask you is, uh, these biases that affect people, uh, many people uh, perhaps think that when we refer to professionals and experts that they are sort of immune to these biases but that is not really correct right yeah i uh, spend a bunch of time uh, investigating professionals such as physicians and others and uh it's true that some types of training like the training accountants receive should make them uh, less likely to make a few errors that professional training takes years to eliminate. But most other people, including professionals, fall prey to the same uh, biases that we have. And it's because they're wired much the same way that the rest of us non-professionals are. And so it's to be expected that they might have some difficulties. I think with some training, it's possible to minimize them. But at least without the training, they're going to be susceptible to some of the same ones we are. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But I mean, even them, the professionals, the, for example, the medical professions and other types of experts, uh, they have to be aware of the fact that ca they can also fall for these uh, cognitive biases and heuristics because otherwise if they are not aware of them, they might even more easily uh, commit them or fall into them. The bad news is that generally being aware of them is not good enough yeah. because if you're aware of them, you're not necessarily going to avoid them. It just means that you've heard about them. So you have to do something more than make people aware generally. You have to do something to counteract the bias. Sometimes I, I do studies in which I get people to be biased in a direction other than their normal bias, thereby counteracting the normal bias. 
but in a way I'm cheating because I'm using a bias in order to counteract a bias rather than de-bias thing altogether by eliminating the bias. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty, I'm pretty forgiving about people who have these uh, judgment errors because I think it's part of being a human being that you're going to be susceptible to some of these. And so I'm trying to think of ways to minimize some of the biases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, they sure. affect us all, there's no question about that. But I mean, there's even this bias that I'm not sure if you studied it, but other people did so, that is the bias blind spot, that is someone, mm -hmm. someone that is affected by the fact that uh, they might think that they are completely immune to the several biases that exist just due to the fact that they are aware of their existence, right? That's right. Yeah, the bias, bias blind spot is sort of a problem of biblical proportions because even if you tell people uh, there are biases, they think, well, they're so terrific, they don't have them, but they can spot them easily in others, they say. Well, if everybody thought that, then there wouldn't be any bias. So it's clear that the bias, bias blind spot uh, presents a problem. You have to convince people they are biased. So in some of my studies, I uh, work hard to convince people that they're biased. That's generally not good enough. You have to do something more than show them that they're biased because they don't know how to correct it. And you have to give them some hints as to how to do it. And that's, that's the general de-biasing literature, which I think is very important. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we will get into that, the fact that we can de-bias people and how to do it today. But first of all, let's go through some of the biases that you've studied and other people as well. Let's start off with the hindsight bias. So what is it about uh, and how can it affect, in this case, expert judgment? The hindsight bias is uh, pretty insidious. It refers to the fact that after an event occurs, we believe we could have easily predicted it beforehand, when in fact you could not have easily predicted it beforehand. It was in first. It was first investigated by Baruch Fischoff in 1975. He presented some people with an historical event. It was the British Gurkha struggle in India, and some people he asked, "What are the probabilities of four possible outcomes? One was the British one." One was the Gurkhas one, one was a stalemate with a peace settlement, one was a stalemate without a peace settlement, and people assigned 100 probability points according to how likely they thought each of the four outcomes were. Other people were told one of the four outcomes occurred, but were asked to assign probability points as if they didn't know that was the outcome that had occurred. Well, these are the hindsight groups. There were four hindsight groups, one for each of the assigned outcomes, in the hindsight, people thought the outcome that they were told was the real outcome was very likely compared to the uh, probability assigned by the foresight group who didn't have this outcome knowledge. I've done the same thing with physicians where they have a difficult case that's presented to them and the foresight group doesn't know the outcome. They assign probabilities to the possible outcomes. Other physicians are told that the final uh, autopsy was shown to indicate one particular outcome, one particular disease was present. And the physicians in this hindsight group think that it would have been easy to predict that, and they wonder why everybody else couldn't possibly predict it. They fall prey to the hindsight bias. Now, this is important because it robs 
the uh, opportunity to learn, because if you think you knew it all along, you feel there's nothing to be learned by this exercise. The exercise in medical lingo is called a clinical pathologic conference in which everybody at the hospital listens to a case. And the case is interesting and difficult, and they're supposed to learn something from it. But if everybody thinks they knew it all along, therefore there's nothing to be learned, and the educational benefit is therefore eliminated. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. That's very interesting. And another type of bias that even has to do again with outcomes, but not, not exactly uh, as the hindsight bias, is the outcome bias. This, that is the fact that people tend to judge that uh, bad results came or were the result of good decisions and bad results were uh, followed from bad decisions, right? Yeah, yeah this, is, this is a uh, common problem in malpractice trials where physicians are sued because some bad outcome occurred. And so the person who suffers from the bad outcome assumes there was a bad decision. When I uh, teach my undergraduate class, I use this example. A physician has uh, two possible courses of action. One has a 90% success rate and one has a 40% success rate. Which should the physician do? And of course, everybody in the class said he should do the one with the 90% success rate. But that means 10% of the time it's a failure. So did the physician make a bad decision by choosing the 90% rate? Well, he didn't make a bad decision, but nevertheless, a bad outcome occurred. And we can't use the outcome as a gauge of how well the decision was made. There are some other factors, too. We have to consider what the person knew at the time the decision was made, not after the outcome. But it's tempting because you feel that a bad outcome must have been preceded by a bad decision. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. And now, just to move on to another topic, uh, what is the phenomenon of overconfidence? Uh, and how can it affect also, again, experts? Yeah, uh, overconfidence is uh, pretty insidious. It's very, very common. And uh, it, it affects experts uh, quite a bit. I've recently done a study with some physicians. I told them at the end of the study that they belong in the Hall of Fame of overconfidence because they had such an enormous amount of overconfidence. There are a few problems with overconfidence. One is that, again, you fail to learn because you thought it was a simple task to do, and therefore you, know, you don't need more information. Another problem is that because you're overconfident, you won't accept any assistance, or you won't use a decision date because you feel there's little room for improvement. Um, so therefore, it uh, prevents people from gaining the help or assistance they need in making a decision. There's a, a study by a guy by the name of Bradley many years ago where he asked people to list their expertise in 12 different topics. And then he asked them a lot of questions in each of those topics, including questions that were just impossible to answer. They had to answer either true or false to a statement like, the boiling point of mercury is 257 degrees centigrade. Well, even if you're a PhD in chemistry, you're unlikely to know that. They had to answer true or false, and needless to say, they were only correct about half the time, which is chance. Then he gave them a second opportunity to go through the list. They could answer either true or false or I don't know. And Bradley found that 
the more expertise you had in the topic, the less likely you were to say, I don't know, on the second pass through the list. Instead, you stuck with your first random answer, even though it was only likely to be correct at the chance level. When you have expertise, you're just reluctant to say you don't know. And of course, you can't know everything. And this is a serious overconfidence problem. If only people would accept some assistance, then they would know. But they're so overconfident, they don't want any help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, that's really a problem. And I mean, we've been talking about experts here for the most part. But are there situations where people that are non-experts might overperform when compared to experts because because of some of these phenomena that we've been talking about, for example? Yeah, I did a study uh, which showed exactly that. I uh, gave people a, a baseball quiz to find out how knowledgeable they were. And I divided them into two groups, those who were truly experts and those who were just of moderate knowledge. And then I gave them, once I decided who was an expert and who wasn't, I gave them a task to do where for each of 19 years, I presented the names and statistics of three players who might have won the most valuable player award that year. Well, I told people that there's a rule they could use that would really help them. It would get them the correct answer 75% of the time. And the rule was, if you just choose the player of the three who, whose team finished highest in the standings, you'll be right three quarters of the time. Well, the experts refused to use the rule very much. The moderate people knew they needed some help. They did use the rule and they outperformed the experts on this task. The experts, by the way, were very overconfident in their not very good performance, whereas the moderate knowledge people weren't overconfident and that's why they were willing to accept the help by using the decision rule. So here's a case where the experts were trapped by their own overconfidence, which cost them some correct answers. Mm -hmm. Yes, and isn't it also true that the fact that people might might be more familiar with a particular type of information rather than other, uh, and perhaps if they are exposed repeatedly to the same information, that they might evaluate, let's say, repeated statements as being more valid than, uh, than information that, are, that they are not familiar with. Yeah, that, that, there's a few names to that. Sometimes it's called the validity effect. Sometimes it's called the repetition effect. And you're absolutely right. If you think it sounds more familiar, you assume it's more likely to be true. And I think there's a rational basis for this, even though it's uh, relatively irrational. The rational basis is that if you hear it from a number of different sources, the assertion obtains some consensual validity because if everybody thinks so, it's more likely to be true than if nobody believes it. And so the more you hear it, the more you think it's likely valid, it's likely true, and so you endorse it more, even though a statement that's not true when endorsed more doesn't become more true, it just becomes more familiar and we use that familiarity as a gauge for validity, which is not rational. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, does that phenomenon has anything to do with what we know as the availability heuristic, for example? Yeah, the availability heuristic was a term that was coined by Kahneman and Tversky in the 1970s. It refers to the fact that the 
ease with which you retrieve something from your memory makes you think that uh, it's more likely, has higher probability of occurrence. And so in, their, in some of the initial studies, they showed that uh, diseases or events that are covered more in the newspaper are thought by people to be more frequent or more probable, even though they're not. Those particular things that are in the paper are more available in your memory. You can easily retrieve them, and therefore you mistakenly <clears throat> think there must have been more of them, must be more probable. I think one of the examples had to do with the probability of someone having asthma or the probability of someone being killed by a tornado. Well, you'll never see a headline in the newspaper like 10 people killed in Kansas by asthma, but you will see headlines like 10 people killed in Kansas due to a tornado. And because there's more notoriety from the tornado deaths and asthma deaths, you'll think that tornado deaths are more frequent when they're not. It's again, sort of a forgivable bias. People try to interrogate their own memory and based on that interrogation, they come with the wrong conclusion because things are more available. And that's what they used as a basis for judging frequency. Mm -hmm. Okay, so before we move into more general questions about all of these cognitive phenomena, uh, I just wanted to talk with you about also the sunk cost fallacy, because uh, th this is another type of uh, bias, I think, that, uh, that people associate most of the time with economic decision making, that is, when people invest a lot of money and particularly over extended periods of time in something, then they get overly attached to that and, and it is very difficult for them to get rid of it, even if uh, it, in truth it is being damaging to them at least after, uh, after a while. But uh, does that also happen, for example, not only with money, but when people uh, invested a lot of their time into learning something and studying something and then they are considered experts and then they, don't, they can't really get rid of the expertise that they got before that might already be, be outdated, for example? I, I don't think it applies so much to expertise because uh, expertise is not something you can abandon. Mm -hmm. uh, you can change your career and decide rather than being a musician, you'll be an architect, for example. But uh, generally the sunk cost effect has to do with investment of time or effort or money and once it's invested and you're on your path to some accomplishment or some goal, it's difficult to give up even though it looks like it's a sure failure. Sometimes this is called the Concorde effect because the uh, supersonic transport plane, the Concorde, quickly became obvious that it was going to be a huge money loss. But the French and British governments just couldn't seem to end the project. And so they kept pouring more money. We call that throwing bad money after good. They continued, I'm wrong, throwing good money after bad uh, because they couldn't uh, decide to end the project, which would have saved them a lot of money had they decided to do it, but they just couldn't do it. And a time example would be if you go to a movie and it's truly awful, 
and you decide, well, I can't leave because I already spent money on it, so I have to stay here for another hour or two and watch it to the bitter end, even though I'm not going to enjoy it. That's a mistake because you have other, other better things to do in your life rather than watch a horrible movie. But you're, if, once you've sunk some cost into it, you're reluctant to uh, give it up. And that leads to a lot of maladaptive decisions. I have, I have a story about that. It, it, contained, it pertained to a, a woman who was in one of my undergraduate classes who listened to my explanation of sunk cost. She had a, a roommate who was involved in a very abusive relationship with her boyfriend. But she decided she really couldn't leave the relationship because she had already spent so much time and effort investing in the relationship. But the woman in my class listened to my sunk cost lecture, explained it to her roommate, and her roommate dumped the boyfriend after listening to the sunk cost lecture. So I thought I did some good for somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's a, a great story. Okay, so now let, let's pick up on all of these biases and heuristics we've been talking about. And uh, is it possible to group them into two different groups uh, when it when regards to the fact that they might affect how people make decisions and how people think in two different ways, that is. Uh, on the one hand, I think that there are the biases and heuristics that affect uh, how people uh, estimate probabilities. And on the other hand, there we have the ones that uh, affect uh, how people synthesize information. Is that correct? Um, there have been a number of different dichotomies proposed. Uh, that's one dichotomy. I mean, I think it's fair to put many biases in one or the other. So that would be an acceptable dichotomy in my mind. Um, probability is a relatively recent concept. It's only a few hundred years old. And so evolution hasn't uh, crafted our minds over uh, a million years or so to understand probabilities well. We do better with natural frequencies rather than probabilities. And uh, synth synthesizing information is also another difficult task. I think synth synthesizing information we probably have more evolutionary experience with. But there are some uh, costs and benefits. For example, if you uh, hear, if you're a caveman and you hear some rustle in the weeds, it might be a good idea to move and get out of the way. But a logician would say, well, you need to consider not only the times when a rustle in the leaves means, means a saber-toothed tiger, you have to consider the times when the rustling leaves might mean it's just windy. Or maybe there are times when the tiger is present, but there aren't any rustling in the leaves. You need to consider all four possibilities, the presence and the absence of the rustling and the presence of the absence of the tiger. But if you wait around for all the evidence and all these four possibilities, you might be eaten by that time. So therefore, the inability to consider all four types of evidence might have some survival value. And you can't blame people for surviving. So therefore, it's a possible reason why we might not be quick at or adept at synthesizing all types of information, even though logically it would be appropriate to do so. The, be the benefits of being, mm, I should say, the uh, costs of being complete in information gathering at this point might be pretty high. And the benefits of only using a modest amount of information, uh, that might outweigh the costs. 
Okay. Uh, and to what point should we trust experts? And I'm asking because on the one hand, uh, it seems that it would make sense for us to, esti to estimate uh, up front that an expert would know much more than a common person that was not related to that area of expertise. Uh, about uh, the, their profession and things like that. But on the other end, because they can also fall for these, let's say, mental shortcuts that not always lead to good decision-making, uh, how should we deal with decision-making when it comes from experts? That's a really excellent question. Uh, the strategy I use is I ask the expert a lot of questions. And uh, I think my uh, physicians know that I'm going to be asking them a lot of questions. And so they're well prepared. And I think uh, by asking questions, you force people to interrogate the basis for their decision and the basis for what they're talking about. Uh, if they don't know the answer or they say things like, trust me, or they give you an answer which you know is suspect and deserves to be investigated on your part, then that's good because they should know that you are going to do your best to check and you want to know the reasons for the decision. And uh, the physicians that I go to are uh, often grateful that I have discussed this with them because they know that by giving me information, I can make a better decision and they know that they're going to have to come up with justifiable reasons for their input. And I think everybody wins. It's uh, the case that the physician knows more than I do about medicine, and the engineer knows more about bridge building than I know. But I need to ask questions so that I'll understand the basis of the decision. And I, I advise everybody to do that, to be inquisitive and find out why the person is coming to the conclusion or giving the advice that they're rendering. Mm -hmm. But then, in that situation, isn't it also the f uh, re uh, true that people uh, have to know the right questions to ask? Yeah, I have an occasionally gone uh, to the web and done a lot of investigation when I have an important decision to make, so that when I show up, I'm going to uh, be able to be semi-intelligent in asking about an unfamiliar topic. There's a, a house we're having a roof put on, and uh, my wife is in charge of choosing the contractor. So last week we interviewed a few uh, people who put on roofs, and uh, we interrogated them. And I think they were impressed about how much we knew. So we, I think, are going to make a better decision, and they know that we're going to be watching carefully and listening carefully. So I have to do a little research beforehand in order to know what are the good questions to ask. If I don't know what are the good questions to ask, then your point is very well taken. I won't be able to find out if the person really is coming to a good decision. Mm -hmm. And would you say that people can could also apply those principles in their own personal decisions? I think so. Um, there are certain techniques that I uh, teach my uh, students about how to arrive at uh, decisions in the most uh, rational way I can. The technique is called MOT, Multiple util Attribute Utility Theory, and you more or less score the uh, criteria upon which your decision is based. 
And after you score each of the criteria by how well a particular option fulfills that criteria, you add up all the fulfillment of all the criteria and come out with a single score. The benefit of this is that you have to make explicit to yourself what are the bases of your decision. And therefore, if there's something that a particular option is weak on, you can ascertain whether other criteria are perhaps so good that it overcomes that weakness or that other criteria isn't good enough to overcome the weakness. It forces some careful thought on the bases of your decisions. And so when I have important decisions, I use MOT in order to arrive at a good conclusion. I don't use it as to which dessert to order, but I do use it for important decisions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so is, the, is this part of the advice you give people as to how they could try de-biasing themselves? Or, and, and are there other strategies? Um, yeah, I, uh, when I uh, work with professionals, sometimes I begin by asking them uh, to rate their confidence in the answers to some questions that I know they're going to have trouble with. My objective is to make them humble. In order to make them humble, I have to show them that they don't know quite as much as they think they know. Uh, in a way, this is sort of cheating because I ask them very difficult questions that I think they will believe they know the answers to, but won't. These are trick questions. And they, uh, after this exercise, are more likely, I think, to have more appropriate confidence levels. Um, there's some other things that are important to do. Sometimes people make decisions and they don't get feedback as to whether or not their decision's right. For example, uh, physicians who work in the emergency room have an extremely difficult task. They have to work quickly and make important decisions. And after they make them, if the person is admitted to the hospital and they go up on one of the wards, the physician doesn't necessarily find out if their decision was a good one. They need some feedback. In many cases, like as a teacher, you might not get the feedback to know whether or not what you've done is appropriate or fosters learning in the best possible way. So I advise people to get feedback, even in those situations where they may not have been getting it in the past. And there are many studies which show that people without feedback continue to get more confident the more times they make a decision, irrespective of the accuracy of the decision. Because they don't get feedback, they assume that it's been accurate. That's probably the most important model. Get feedback so you'll know whether your decision was right or not. I always advise clinicians to do that too. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So, Dr. Arks, before we go, could you please share with people perhaps where they can find and follow your work on the internet? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, uh, I retired, uh, let's see, seven years ago. So my website has some of my more recent publications, uh, but it doesn't have my entire uh, Vita. So my recent publications can be found at the Ohio State University Department of Psychology website that has my name on it. And then it lists about 10 recent publications in which I talk about some of these biases. Or people can just write me and I'll send them anything they like. I'm at Ohio State University's Department of Psychology. I'm easy to find. My address is on the uh, website and I'll send whatever people would like to have.
Okay, very well. So, Dr. Arx, it was really a lovely and interesting conversation that we had here today, I think. Uh, thank you again for taking the time. It was really a pleasure on my part. And perhaps we could in the future have another conversation. I don't know. That'd be kind. And it was very nice talking with you. Thanks for calling. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Hi guys, thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.